You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, good morning, family. Good to see all of you. If this is your first time, welcome. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for joining us. If it is your first time this morning, if it is, we'd love to offer you a free gift this morning, a sippy cup or a tumbler or that other thing, I'm not sure what it's called, but uh, any of those are your gift, uh, our gift to you. If it's your first time, you can get that over the info desk over there. Uh, If you have or would like information about our church or there's something we can be praying about for you, there's a slip in the seat back in front of you. You can take that, fill it out, and then put it in the offering slot, which is right over there. Talking about issues this morning that are confusing, contentious, potentially painful, uh, which means we need Jesus' help to receive what he says. And so why don't we pray? I'll pray for us before we go to the word today. Father, thank you um, for writing your desire to be with us into the fabric of creation itself. Thank you for desiring a covenant with us and for sending your son to claim us as his bride. And uh, God, as we reflect on your word today, would we see the beauty of your design for us, for male, for female, for marriage, and would it all resound to your glory, Jesus. We pray it for your sake. Amen. So about a decade ago, a young man walked into Ellen Fawn Plaza in Washington, D.C., and he took out a violin and he started to play and proceeded to play for the next 45 minutes or so. And as he played in this busy plaza, hundreds of federal employees streamed by. Some looked up, a handful of people threw him a tip, but almost no one stopped to listen to this young violinist. And what none of these federal workers realized is that they were in the presence of greatness. The young man playing was world-renowned violinist Joshua Bell. Just a few nights before, he had packed the Boston Symphony Hall. Tickets had gone for hundreds of dollars. And that day, Bell was playing Bach's Partita Number 2, which is one of the most insanely challenging and revered pieces of violin music within the entire Western canon. And Bell was playing that instrument on a 300-year-old, $3.5 million Stradivarius violin. So why would he do that? This was actually a a social experiment conducted by Gene Weingarten of the Washington Post. And Gene had this interesting idea. He wanted to see if people could recognize beauty and transcendence if it slapped them in the face. If in the monotony and, and mundane of everyday life, we could discern what is truly and exceptionally beautiful and good. And uh, according to the experiment, I guess we can't. Or it's hard to discern sometimes, isn't it? And it provokes an interesting question, like can we see transcendent beauty in the mundane, in the monotony of our daily lives? So over the next two weeks, we're going to talk about marriage. We're talking about man, woman, sexuality, marriage, how all of these things fit together. Now, we could spend 27 weeks on the subject of marriage, but we're not, uh, because this is not a series on marriage. It's a series on the book of Genesis. 
So we're not going to answer all of your questions about marriage. Sorry to disappoint you at the outset. But we are going to talk about the most fundamental questions and try to answer those. Because the book of Genesis, as we've seen, chapters 1 through 11, gives us a framework for understanding the entire biblical story. It sets us up with the categories and ideas we need to understand the entire biblical plot. And Genesis 1 through 2, in particular, give us the framework we need to just understand what God's doing when he creates man and woman and this covenant of marriage. So two weeks on this, I'm going to talk about God's plan for your marriage, and then next week my dad's going to talk about the problem with your marriage. So I'm not fixing all your marital problems today, okay? My dad will do that next week. So all the pressure's on him to take care of those. But, but this week, God's plan, my hope is, is this. This is not the how-tos of marriage, okay? This is about seeing marriage with God's eyes and his lens because my prayer is this, that if you can see the biblical narrative, you can understand why marriage is transcendent and divinely beautiful. Now, when it comes to marriage, beauty might not be the first word that comes to mind. Because in our culture, issues related to sexuality and gender and marriage are confusing issues, and they are hotly, hotly contentious issues too. These are endlessly debated, culture wars, all of this other stuff is bound up with these issues. Now, I think you could say in the Western world, particularly over the last 300 years or so, the self and self-understanding has become the dominant lens through which we view life. How do I determine what's real? How do I determine what's good? Well, I define these th things in terms of what resonates with me, what resonates with my deepest desires. So what's good? Well, what's good is what feels authentic to me, what feels right, what resonates with my deepest self. This, is, this has been called the age of authenticity. Because the greatest evil in our day is not to be unvirtuous, it's to be inauthentic. It's to fail to be true to this imagined self. And that worldview where you begin and end with self for defining reality, it has profound implications for how we think about gender, sex, marriage, and romantic fulfillment. We view all of these things through this lens of self and what feels authentic to me. So when it comes to romantic commitment, well, my partner, they need to be what? Compatible with me. They need to help me achieve my goals. And if a partner or a spouse no longer helps me self-actualize or achieve my potential, well, then they're no longer a good fit. In fact, it might be best for me to move on. Uh, there's this show, Cashel and I really like, and we were watching an episode this past week. And in the show, it's so interesting, this couple, they get a divorce and the only reason given for the divorce is that the wife no longer feels anything for her husband. That's it. Just, I, I don't feel anything, so we're done. And here's what's so fascinating about it. The husband is totally understanding. He doesn't protest. He doesn't object. He affirms the decision. He releases the wife. And it's never clear that there's a substantive conflict in the marriage or any kind of mistreatment in the marriage whatsoever. It's just, we grew apart, we fell out of love, this is a necessary ending. Now, I'm like cussing at the television and throwing things as this is all happening, 
But, but I had to take a step back because it's clear the producers want you to feel sympathy for these characters. I did not feel that. But they want you to feel sympathy. Why? The producers assume this is relatable to the audience. They're assuming the audience is going to watch this and go, yeah, that's true. People fall out of love. They grow apart, right? So that is a dominant cultural understanding. We view commitment through the lens of self, self-actualization, compatibility, what works best for me. We view sexual expression through the lens of self. Sex is about pleasure, self-actualization, self-affirmation. And apparently in our culture, the only limiting factors on this behavior are maybe age and consent. Age and consent are the two things that sort of govern how we think about that. And now we've reached a point where gender is defined increasingly in the exact same way, that even maleness, femaleness, these terms are self-defined. So it's up to me what I am and how I define those things. And to gender and perhaps even my biological self-conception, it kind of begins and ends with me and what resonates with me. And so now we've reached in a culture, or a point in our culture, and it's kind of an ironic point we've gotten to, where on the one hand, Gender is profoundly meaningful to my subjective sense of identity. Subjectively, it's incredibly meaningful. On the other hand, objectively, gender is meaningless. Terms like man, woman, male, female, they mean literally nothing, just what the self defines it as. So you have a culture where gender is profoundly subjectively meaningful and completely meaningless. There's no agreed upon definition of any of these terms. And that's sort of the fruit of this self-defined way of thinking. So gender, sex, all of these things, there is tremendous confusion, contention in our culture. And, and the question, the million-dollar question for us as disciples of Jesus is where do we even begin to start in thinking about these things? Well, I don't think we should start with our feelings. We shouldn't say, I agree or I disagree and I feel strongly. That's not where we start. Nor do we start with culture. We don't say, here's why progressive culture is great, or here's why traditional culture is better, and make it some culture war thing. That, that's not going to solve our answer, our questions about this. Ultimately, the place to start is God. Because ultimately, God is the author of the biblical story and the author of our story. And in any story, how do you determine what something means? How do you determine what something means? It's what the author intends, right? In any story, the authorial intent determines what something means. And so the question is, okay, assuming God created male and female and marriage, what do they mean? What do they signify? Because until we answer those questions, we're not going to be clear on any of this stuff. So what does God intend? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm going to answer that. Two points this morning. First, I want you to see why God made us different and that he made us for devotion. God makes us different. He makes us for devotion. And what I hope you see are two things. That there is, first, an organic connection between maleness, femaleness, sex, and the covenant of marriage in the biblical story. And these things are a tapestry. They're inextricable. In fact, when you start to pull the thread and try to separate those, all of those lose their meaning in the biblical story. They lose their significance. That's number one. And two, I want you to see the cosmic significance of what God is doing when he makes male and female because it's way bigger than us. It's way bigger than us. We're not going to look inward. We're not going to look outward. We're going to look upward 
to see what God says. So, made different. Let's start by looking at our created differences. You know, God could have created humans any way he wanted, right? He's God. He can do whatever he wanted. And yet, he didn't. He made us a certain way. And Genesis 1 tells us how God made us. Verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, notice here, there is only one distinction given within humanity. Only one. And it's this distinction between male and female. So so God creates humanity as this pair, a sexed pair, and clearly they are different and created different. But here's what I want you to notice. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, they're not the first pair mentioned in Genesis 1. In fact, they're the last pair mentioned. Because what you see in Genesis 1, we looked at this, is God loves creating pairs. He just loves this. Look at the rhythm and rhyme of God's creative activity here, right? Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. First service talks more, okay? You got you to work at this, all right? Heavens and the earth, right? So there's heaven, which is symbolic of God's space. There's earth, which is symbolic of, of our space. He creates these two realms, and then that's the universe. God fills his created order with what? More pairs. So we read on to say there's day and night, and, and then there's earth and sea. There's sun and moon. There's work. There's rest. There's peanut butter. There's jelly. There's macaroni, there's cheese, there's Steph, there's clay, right? Those are implied here in the text. All those are are coming. But see, God loves creating difference. He orders his world with distinctions. But here's what's critical to see. The distinctions are not divisions. The distinctions are not in competition with each other. The distinctions are complementary to each other. The distinctions strengthen each other. That's part of the goodness of this created order. And and so these are complementary, right? Night and day work together for our good. They regulate our rhythms. Earth and sky work together to bring forth the abundance of the world. Work and rest, as we saw last week. They're not competitive. They're what? Complementary. They enrich and strengthen each other. And that has profound implications for how we think about man and woman. There is a distinction, but it is not a division in the sense of competition. Instead, it's collaboration. It's complementary that each supplies what the other lacks. And so we should not talk about male and female as the opposite sex, as if there's yin and yang and they're polarized and there's tension. It's no, that they are perfectly paired to accomplish and be what God wants them to accomplish and be. And that truth shines through in Genesis 2. So Genesis 1, male and female. Genesis 2, the author zooms in, and now he elaborates on what it means to be created as man and woman. Verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, the first chapters of Genesis are like a song, right? And this is kind of the, the, right, the record scratch. I can't do that sound well, right? But like, this is jarring, right? Because throughout Genesis 1, what do we hear? God created and it was good. Thank you for talking. It was good. It was good. 
It was good. It was good. It is not good. It's startling. We should pay attention to that. Now think about that. Sin hasn't entered the world. Human rebellion hasn't entered the world. Nothing bad has ostensibly entered the world, and yet there is something not good. What is it? It's the absence of woman. The absence of woman is the completion of God's creation, right? Creation is good, and then in Genesis 1, male and female, after that, it's very good. It takes the introduction of woman for creation to become not just a good place, but a very good place. Now, why wasn't it good for man to be alone? Now, we often think of Adam's problem in terms of loneliness. He's sitting there alone like, I really could use someone to hang out with, so God creates woman. Now, that's true that we do have an innate need for companionship, but the problem is deeper than loneliness. It's not just loneliness, it's Adam's aloneness. And here's what I mean. God gave Adam a mission to cultivate the earth and subdue it and reign over it. And part of that mission was to be fruitful and multiply. It was to create humans who would create culture. And here's what's clear in Genesis 2. Adam can't do that on his own. He needs a complementary partner, not just to bring forth children, but someone who will help and supply what he is lacking and so that together this pair can image God, can image God's nature, and then rule the world together. And here's what I love about what God does. He just shows Adam how big the problem is. He says it's not good for man to be alone, and then he just creates tension and adds to the problem, right? Look what God does. So, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Don't you love how God shows Adam his need? Adam's like, man, I think I need a pair. God's like, let's try everything in creation. And he parades all of these animals before Adam, and Adam begins to name him to exacerbate and show him his need. Now, I know some of y'all have dated weird people. Um, Right, you had some weird dating history. None of your dating history is weirder than Adam, right? Because he's just naming these animals. He's like, yeah, this is not, it's not going to work out for us, right? Like, he's just looking at these animals. And, and here's the thing. I got to imagine that as Adam is naming creation, he's like, huh, seems like a lot of these animals come in pairs. Where's mine, God? And God, after showing Adam his immense need, graciously meets it. The text goes on, verse 21, so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. God forms man from the dust, but he forms woman from man. Now, the Hebrew word is not rib. That's just a guess. The Hebrew word is literally side. God takes Adam's side, some flesh and bone composite, and builds it into woman. Now, I don't think the author is giving us like a clinical description or some anatomy lesson here. This is hugely significant symbolically because this is what it means, that when God divides humanity into male and female, there is an essential equality between man and woman. 
They're made of the same stuff. They're equal. They're both human. They're both image bearers, and they're equally necessary and important to fulfilling God's creative mandate in the world, to rule the world and to subdue it. So clearly there is an equality here. Matthew Henry's famous quote, and I'm going to butcher it, he basically said, you know, woman was not taken from Adam's head to domineer him or taken from Adam's feet uh, that Adam would stomp on him, but he's taken from Adam's side, which shows that they are meant to be joined together in a partnership close to Adam's heart. That's the view. We're partners together. I can't do this without you. You can't do it without me. We need each other to fulfill God's redemptive mission in the world. So there's fundamental similarity. What are they? They're human, so they have far more in common than they do apart, and yet they are clearly different. Male is not female. They are not interchangeable. And if you look at the the titles and the symbolism, it's clear they're not interchangeable. Man is often described through the language of headship here, which is representative before God and also a guardian, a protector. And woman here is described as helper. And a few things about that term that are important to keep in mind. First, the woman is not a helper in man's mission. She is a helper in God's mission for both of them. Okay, so God gives them this mission of ruling over creation, being fruitful and multiplying. God looks at man and goes, you are going to screw this up on your own, right? gives woman, and now they are co-partners in God's mission. That's the first thing to note. So it's not just man's idea of whatever the mission is. It's God's mission. Second, that term helper, it doesn't connote any kind of inferiority at all. It's a strong term. In fact, I think it's used 19 times in the Bible. 15 of those times it's used of God. God is described as our helper. And so there's a headship role, there's a helper role, they're supposed to work together in filling the earth, in ruling over the earth. And and this helps us have a balanced view of male and female. Because on the one hand, we shouldn't exaggerate the difference between men and women. They're both humans. Humans all basically do the same kind of stuff. And so to be very careful of assuming this is always going to be a male activity, this is always a female activity, doesn't work like that because we're fundamentally human. And yet, there is a beautiful difference and interdependency, right? You have man who, if you look at the Genesis narrative, he is more closely associated with days one through three of creation, with the forming, naming, taming days are more characteristic of man. Creation four through six, the beautifying, filling with life, glorifying role of God in creation is more associated with the woman and her role. We know that just from looking at the anatomy of men and women, that there is a form and function that is different. And so there is fundamental equality and importance, but there's also a significant division. Andrew Wilson says it this way. He says, imagine an alien was visiting the earth, and he discovered that one sex was taller, stronger, and hairier than the other, with sexual organs that were external and faced outward, while the smaller partner's sexual organs were internal and served as the location of both sexual intercourse and pregnancy. Then imagine them discovering that, generally speaking, one was better at forming relationships, holding small groups together, working with people, while the other was more suited to external agency, risk-taking, and working with things. Finally, imagine them being introduced to biblical categories for the sexes, towers and cities, warriors and gardens, priests and temples, the blood-spattered groom and the pure, spotless bride, Which would our alien think was which? See, the differences 
shouldn't be exaggerated. They also shouldn't be denied. There is a goodness. Male and female is not just our own self-conception. It's not just a gendered construct or something like that. It is good by God's design. And here's the theological implication of this and why it's so important for you to get. What is all this pointing to? That God's desire for relationship with us is written into the fabric of creation and into the male-female relationship in particular. Because what does God do? He creates a gazillion complementary pairs. What do you think he's trying to teach us? Heaven and earth are made for each other to interlock and overlap. Day and night, earth and sky, man and woman, God and us. That we are God's suitable helper who he's created to be in a covenant relationship with us. And the purpose of marriage is to showcase to the world God's desire for a covenant with humanity. That's why the maleness of marriage, the femaleness of marriage is critical to the image God wants to give to teach us that we are created to know someone who is different than us, yet created to know uh, we are created to know them. Does that make sense? This is way bigger, this symbolic world, than just my happiness in marriage. This is cosmological complementarity, is what God is trying to teach us here. Here's the second thing, the practical implication. Marital differences are for our growth. Male and female are different to fulfill and round out each other, and the differences aren't a bad thing. They're a good thing, and you should embrace them because here's the thing about marital conflict. Sometimes you're right. Sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes they're right, believe it or not, and you're wrong. Sometimes y'all are just different. You just approach things differently, and that's a good thing because it rounds you out as a person. Remember Dale Gregory, who's a Creeksider, she's, she's kind of a sage in the early childhood development world, and she was doing this parent ed night at preschool. And, and this woman was concerned about her husband, and she said, you know, my husband, he, he can be very gentle and compassionate, but sometimes when he talks to our son, he's very direct. And, and he can be stern. He can be pretty forceful. And is that Okay. And Dale just paused, and she said, you know what? Sometimes differences are strengths. And she just left it there. And that's the truth. You are not like your spouse, and God created it that way. And God made you different, so you'd have to learn to love someone who is other, who is not like you. They are anatomically different, physiologically, psychologically. They are different, and now you've got to learn to love this stranger that God puts you with which means dying to yourself and learning to love them. See, because God's love in his Trinitarian nature is an other-centered love, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. They are different eternally, personally, and exist in a union of love. That's why you need male and female in marriage to teach you how to learn to love a stranger and die to your own biases and proclivities. And this completely goes against our culture. Here's why. Because in our culture, the number one thing people are looking for is compatibility. And what they mean by compatibility is this. My spouse has to be smoking hot. That's number one. And two, they can't try to change me. 
They have to just accept me exactly as I am. This is who I am. I'm not changing. And so my spouse needs to affirm me every way. And here's the problem. You get two people together in marriage, that's not what happens. You see all your weaknesses, your differences. You have to learn uncomfortable lessons about loving someone else. But in our culture, we are obsessed with compatibility, which assumes what? I'm not going to change. I'm not going to change. This is how e-harmony becomes me-harmony, right? <laughs> Find somebody who's just like me who affirms me. But why on earth would you get married if that's the goal? It was not good for man to be alone. He could not fulfill his vocation apart from someone different. Same with woman. So the next time you're in a conflict with your spouse, ask, okay, is this good, is this bad, or is it just different? And now how can I incline myself toward them to learn how to become a person I wouldn't have become had they not been in my life? Cashel and I are different. I'm conviction, she's compassion. I like good movies, she doesn't. We're, we're different, okay? <laughs> That's one of the right-wrong areas, not different, just right or wrong. But, but I will tell you, I would have never become as compassionate a person as I am today. I, you know, still got work to do. But if it wasn't for Cashel constantly giving me a different perspective on every decision we make, and not just what's the principle to stand on, but how does this affect people. I need that because I have blind spots. That's the purpose of marriage. So, we are made different, and yet we are made devoted. Right? Do you see this? Distinction, and yet made for connection. To supply what the other lacks. And that gets to the second point, that we're made for this devotion. Let's see how the man responds here to God's creation. Then the man said, this at last. Apparently he spent a long time looking at animals. At last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, and now the author just gives his take, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his life and wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. God officiates the first wedding ceremony here. He builds this woman out of man, brings her and the man says, at last, this is who I was created to know on this earth. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We're family, that's what he's saying. And God officiates the first wedding ceremony. And the author says, what is true of the first wedding is true of every wedding that comes after. He inserts the truth we're supposed to get. He says, therefore. Now, what is that therefore, therefore? It's always an important question to ask. Whenever you read the Bible, you see a therefore, what's it there for? Well, what does it refer back to? Here's what the author is saying. In light of the fact that God created us male and female for each other to help each other, a man should seek union with a woman. He's saying that our creational design points us in this direction of having a covenant in this direction between man and woman. And there are three elements to this. Three elements to this committed relationship. The first one is affection. There's a profound affection here, right? The man, when he sees the woman, breaks out into song. This is song in Hebrew. And it's the first R&B song in history. It's bone of my bone. That's, that's, that's what it says in the Hebrew, okay? Um, I really, I like thinking of this as a mid-90s R&B song, okay? I hope it was. That's how I think of this song. But it's affection. He sings when he sees her. 
But it's deeper than just emotional attachment. It's allegiance to this person. It's a life commitment. That's the point of verse 24. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Here's what's astounding about that comment. This is written in a patriarchal culture where when a man and a woman got married, they joined the man's family. The the woman was essentially becoming part of the man's family with the patriarch at the top. But here the author is saying that when a man and a woman merge, they become a whole new family. And allegiance is now primary from husband to wife and wife to husband, and the parents no longer have primary authority or primary say over what the child does. That term leave, it means to forsake. That's the point. You forsake your parents, not in an absolute sense like you're going to abandon them, but to say that, listen, your plan for my life is not the ultimate plan. That it's what God calls us to do in our marriage because God is creating a new family. And it's a covenant. That term, hold fast, hold fast to his wife, that is covenant language. In the book of Deuteronomy, God calls Israel to do what? To hold fast to him. So God describes marriage in the same language he describes his covenant with his people. Are you seeing the bigger picture again of what God is trying to paint? It's a one flesh union. One flesh means that when we enter into this covenant together, it is no longer two selfish me's, it is one we. It's not my dreams for your life and your dreams, it's our dreams. It's what God is calling us to. It's one bed, one budget, one suffering, one reputation. My assets are your assets. My liabilities are your liabilities. My destiny is your destiny for better or worse. You get the idea. It is a head and a body joining, having to work together in every decision, learning how to be one. That is the one flesh union. And notice here, you see the close connection between male, female, sex, marriage? One flesh clearly means sex. But sex is the symbol of what? A whole life joining together. Which means, well, what's our sexual ethic as Christians? The first question to ask is, what is sex? Well, here you go. Sex, according to God, is the way a man and a woman initiate a lifelong, permanent, exclusive covenant. That's what it is. It is the covenant initiation ceremony. It is the covenant renewal ceremony. That is what it is. It is a symbol of the union. It is a signifier of the union. It is a seal of the union, which means from a biblical standpoint, it is impossible to detach our view of male, female, sex, marriage. They all go together to initiate and undergird a one man, one woman, fully shared life forever. Why? Because it's a picture of, of the covenant God wants with us. And we'll get to that in a minute. Final point here, affection, allegiance. Third is acceptance. It's a relationship characterized by acceptance. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I don't think the point is just that they were hanging out naked in the garden and were comfortable with that. The deeper point here is that man and wife were fully known and fully loved that they were fully seen by the other and yet fully accepted and embraced. And I could go for a long time on this one. But here's the reality of marriage, that marriage by its very nature 
puts you in contact with this other, right? With a stranger, and you are absolutely, totally exposed to them. Your weaknesses, your faults, your weirdness is just laid bare. Which means this, your spouse has the ability, more than any other human relationship, that spouse has the ability to give you a positive self-image or to crush you under the weight of their judgment. Because they totally see you. They see it all. This is why acceptance, and this is a practical point, I'm going to preach on this for a second, is so critical if you're in a marriage relationship. I love the way G.K. Chesterton said it. That a man and a woman cannot live together without having against each other a kind of everlasting joke. Each has discovered that the other is a fool, but a great fool. This largeness, this grossness and gorgeousness of folly is the thing which we all find about those with whom we are in intimate contact, and it is the one enduring basis of affection and even of respect. Do you know what, you know what Chesterton is saying is true of any happy marriage? Is that I know this person is a moron. Like, they are an idiot. I know it better than anyone. And yet all of their foibles and struggles endear them to me and actually incline me to keep serving and loving them. Let me plead with you. There could be major issues in your marriage that need to be resolved. Most issues, most marriages have major issues. And there are times you need to speak hard truth to your spouse. But I, I beg you, Please do not crush your spouse with constant evaluation, criticism, emotional punishment. Because you have no idea the power you wield over them and it will crush them. It will crush them. My, um, my wife knows I'm a moron. She knows that, uh, you know, there are weird things. I, uh, I don't like being scared, particularly when it's dark. There are a few things my wife loves more than scaring me when it's dark. My wife knows that I'm not particularly romantic or intentional. Most of my date night ideas are last minute or ill-conceived. She knows I'm a perfectionist, that I agonize over getting things done and thinking about it rather than getting them done. She knows that I can become unreasonably angry, that I'm prone to brooding, to introspection, to obsessing about our church. She knows that I hate talking about planning more than anything. I hate making plans. She knows that uh, I'm not very handy. And often when I try to fix things around the house, I just burn the house down. She knows how much that frustrates me because I don't feel as manly as I'd like to in those areas. She knows about my fear of failure and how I obsess about it. One thing I also know about her is that she has never held any of those things over me. She does not punish me emotionally for the areas where growth is slow. Which is why I trust my wife more than any human being on the planet. Because she sees what a moron I am and she's endeared to me still. Do you realize the power you have as a spouse? This relationship is most like our covenant relationship with God where he totally knows us and says, I love you anyway. In fact, my heart is drawn out to you. And you have the power 
to show your spouse the mercy of God every day. And let me tell you, if you do that, and a lot of times all it takes to do that is not to emotionally punish them. And you know what I mean when you're the eye of Mordor toward your spouse all the time. Oh, can't. Right? You're crushing them. Acceptance. Here's the theological implication. I've already said it. That our covenant-keeping love in marriage is meant to display God's covenant-keeping love toward us. The reason you stick it out in marriage is because it's not about you. God's the author. He created it for His glory, and it's Jesus' reputation that's at stake in your marriage. God wants to give the world a miniature social platform on which his covenant-keeping love can be displayed, husband and wife, in it, through thick and thin, to show God's affection, God's allegiance, God's acceptance to us. And that leads to the practical implication that fundamentally, you know why you stick it out in marriage? It's for Jesus' sake, not yours. You keep serving your spouse for Christ's sake, not, your own, not even for your spouse's sake. Because let's be honest, a lot of times we try to do nice things for our spouse, they might not appreciate it. It might make things worse, like when I try to fix the house. It's for Jesus' sake. That is the motivation. That's what should get you up in the morning. That's what should reprogram the way you look at all marital conflict. Imagine the next time you're in a conflict with your spouse, that you are in the room, your spouse is in the room, and Jesus is in the room. And Jesus is listening to you. Yada, da, da, da. Yada, da, da, da. And you go, Jesus, which one of us is right? Settle it for us. Do you know what Jesus is most concerned about? What does my love look like in your relationship? Is the way you're dealing with your disagreement embodying my love for the world? Is it giving a true picture of the gospel or a false picture? That'll change the way you fight with your spouse. Because it's not about you, it's about Jesus. He, is more, he has more investment in your marriage than you do. Because he created this for his glory. And it's his reputation, that's why we stick it out when it's hard. That's why you refuse to just fall out of love as a Christian, that ridiculous idea. As if love sustains the covenant rather than covenant sustaining the love. That is it. Ultimately, all of this is a picture. And let me say this if you're not married. That marriage is just a signpost to a greater reality. The greater reality is God's relationship with who? With us. So, so if you're, regardless of whether you're married or single, if you're in the family of God, you're in the eternal family of God, which is the eternal bride of Christ, and that is the relationship, whether you're married or single, that ultimately we were created for. Marriage is momentary. That marriage is eternal. And any momentary marriage just tells the story of the greatest love story ever. And the greatest love story is this, that as James Jordan says, God created humanity to be his suitable helper. God created humanity to be the daughter of the father, who would mature to be a bride for the son. We have been a wayward bride 
But the Son came to earth and took on our humanity and said, it is not good for me to be alone. And therefore, I will leave my heavenly family and cleave to my church. And Jesus becomes one with us. And in binding himself to us, Jesus takes on all our liabilities. <laughs> for better or worse. And believe me, for Jesus at the, end, the beginning point, it was for worse. In fact, he takes all of our sin and death and the consequences and goes to the cross. And at the cross, God plunges, plunges the final Adam into a deep sleep and from the side of Jesus flow blood and water from which the church is born. The pure, spotless bride. And now Jesus is purifying that bride for a coming day where there will be the greatest reunion you've ever seen, where heaven and earth, which were created for each other but separated by sin, are now mended, and heaven and earth become one, the bridegroom and the bride celebrate. And all of these images, day and night, husband and wife, fade into the background because the symbolism has given way to the substance. Do you see how marriage is so much bigger than you? This is the cosmic romance the cosmic love for which God created us. Let's pray. Jesus, I know easier said than done with so many of these things. But I pray, Lord, for, for those of us particularly who are married, that, that the motivator every day would be to display your covenant-keeping love that our motivation would be your covenant-keeping love toward us. And that, Lord, that we would stick it out in joy, Jesus, for your reputation. Thank you for giving us this image to display the depth of your love for us. pray all of it in your name. Amen.